0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I am Paul Björk, and I'm the host of your channel today. Uh, Today, we'll be talking to Kristen Phillips about her new book, An Ethnography of Hunger Politics, Subsistence, and the Unpredictable Grace of the Sun, which was published last year, 2018, on Indiana University Press. Uh, Kristen is a senior lecturer. In African Studies and Anthropology at Emory University. Kristen, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. I wonder if we could begin. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this topic?
1: Absolutely. Um, I I landed in Tanzania for the first time as a doctoral research assistant for um, my advisor, Amy Stambach. I was studying anthropology and education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I actually um, landed in Tanzania with her um, for the first time uh, doing a research on the role of U.S. missionaries, specifically college student missionaries in education in northern Tanzania. Um, and I was at the time plotting my own dissertation research, uh, looking at sort of um, what at the time in the early 2000s seemed to the, be this overwhelming trend of, uh, of um, Sort of the buzzword participating in development and building community participation and development and so I, I spent a few months with her in uh, in northern Tanzania near Kilimanjaro and um, it was it was a pretty amazing experience um, doing interviews with these young US missionaries uh, and um, and also getting to know some Tanzanian families that I'm that I'm actually still friends with today. Uh, but one of the things that struck me was that so much of what I was reading as a doctoral student about Tanzania was written in places like Kilimanjaro, um, and also uh, places that had been heavily either heavily settled by missionaries, heavily um, developed for tourism, um, or places like Dar that were the seat of government. Um, and I was really interested in sort of what I saw as the rest of Tanzania. Um, and during that summer I uh I started talking to people about um trying to understand what life looked like in some of the more peripheral parts of Tanzania um sort of in the in the margins that also um that also seemed to be kind of the norm from what I could tell from my travels um by bus across the country. And um and that's how I that's how I came to my interest in um, at. at uh, Madison, I studied African Studies. I also studied Swahili. Uh, and so a lot of my early time in Tanzania was um, in language programs, um, really great programs that um, that allowed me to build relationships with Tanzanian, um, my Tanzanian teachers who were teaching me the language um, and who really served to kind of mediate my early experiences in Tanzania and help help kind of orient me uh, to um, to some of the significant differences of Tanzanian life, whether you're living in urban areas or in rural areas. Uh, so, so those those were great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and then you can, I mean, I, I can see how that happened. And then I, I see that there are these kind of focal points, cause of points of sort of easy access into Tanzanian society, as you mentioned, the kind of tourist-heavy areas, the more urban areas. And at the time, Singida, uh, you know now Singida is a little bit more accessible because they've paved yeah. the roads to get there. But uh, I remember, and I've, I've been through Singida, and people said, "Yeah, now we're on the map." Uh, but yeah, prior to that, <laughs>
1: exactly. In fact,
0: you mentioned somewhere in the book uh, Singida and sort of joking that yeah, those you know food aid and and uh, some of the other programs that the government is doing those are for Tanzania, which is the country. But uh, we we still live in Tanganyika. Can you explain that statement a little bit and how it? is telling uh, uh, how Singidens perceive their place on the kind of geography of Tanzania.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think the the quote alludes to a sense that um, with regard to their citizenship and their ability to kind of access the the fruits of citizenship, they're kind of stuck back in a colonial past. Tanganyika um, was, of course, the colonial entity um, governed by um, by uh, the Germans and then the British, and um, and so sort of alluding to themselves as not quite yet in a in a present present modernity where the where the government actually owes them something, um, and. I I guess f- to, to further illustrate that point about not yet being on the map, I can remember in, in, it was probably 2004 when I first arrived in the village that I lived in, they had hired an artist to, uh, or a local kind of um, painter artist to uh, paint a map of Tanzania onto the side of the primary school building, and even on that map, <laughs> they didn't put Singita on it. Um, so they, <laughs> um, so there was this this primary school um, with a map on it that that didn't have their own region on it, but had other sort of significant metropolises on it.
0: Interesting, interesting, yeah. Uh, and so, in I mean, you found you know a place that's almost absolutely central geographically in Tanzania and yet extraordinarily marginal um, in its, uh, in its relationship to the avenues of commerce and uh, politics.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, um, and and that was very much why I chose it. And at the same time, it also seemed to me somewhat representative of life in a lot of Tanzania. Um, And so it was this, it was this trying to understand the position of this, Of these economically marginal populations that actually form, you know, the majority of um, of Tanzanians and and trying to understand, I guess, um, questions of political consent um, uh, and and their sort of. Um, their acceptance of this of this type of position was was something I really struggled to understand, especially in my early time there.
0: yeah well let, we'll return to uh, some of those topics as we go. Yes. I mean you you really touch on those with great insight and sensitivity. And as you know, I've spent quite a bit of time in Iringa and uh, that's and, I, and what you say about the representativeness of Singida, as much as it's marginal, actually this is a country that even now is majority uh, rural, um, mm-hmm. although that's changing quickly. Yes, but um, you know that this is probably more representative of the experience socially, politically, agriculturally um, to uh, to many in other parts of Tanzania. Um, You mentioned, you know, and one other thing, you know, we touched on this uh, before the interview: um, the religiosity of uh, Tanzanian society. Um, and you mentioned that you started, you know, sort of talking to young uh, Americans who are doing some sort of mission work there. Uh, what is what what how, what is your experience of uh, religiosity in Tanzanian society? You know, a famously multi-religious society with uh, you know pretty good relations across religious boundaries, but one that is. Nevertheless, profoundly religious in, in every uh, aspect of Absolutely. life. Absolutely. What, what is your experience of that, and and, and uh, how, how do scholars address that kind of religiosity when it's kind of pervasive in every topic you they study?
1: I mean, it it it. Um... It absolutely essential to the to the ways in which people live their lives and make meaning of their lives. Um, and I have in that in that first summer in Moshi, I was I was in a very Lutheran environment. Um, in Singida, I was in a uh, predominantly Catholic, but also very Muslim environment. In fact, I lived I lived with a Muslim family. The um, most of the leadership in the village was was actually Muslim, um, and much of urban Singida is Muslim. Uh, so I, I had the chance to see. That religiosity from a number of different perspectives during my time in Tanzania, and I think, um, and it's so, uh, I think it's the experience um, for me. I, I, I experienced it is so bound up with this, um, with a sense of precarity um, mm. that also pervades, uh, life in Tanzania, I think across socioeconomic classes. Uh, and so, and so for me, those are kind of the, um, Those are the, you know, getting on a bus and having the driver lead the bus in prayer before you take a 10-hour trip across the country Um, or learning to always sort of say, you know, God willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, I think these are the ways in which sometimes people think about their lives in a situation where – uh and at, um and this has changed, I think, but um where the roads were not very safe and where mm-hmm. um sickness and uh and and other things prevented people's plans from being carried out um in ways that they expected. Uh and so I'm not um certainly not uh reducing religiosity to that precarity, but for me those two things were um were, were I think I learned from that um, because, of course, nobody can predict, predict what's going to happen. You know, even here in the United States, but yet we we often, I think, feel um, in I guess what I'll call the global north um, that we're kind of entitled to tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess that that sense of um, entitlement to to tomorrow is not is not one that you encounter very often in in tanzania and uh and and that um and so it's all kind of mediated through an understanding of of god's will
0: yeah that that, yeah i there's a number of themes in there i can relate to one being i'm pretty sure a bus tour from Singida one time uh that was a little wobbly (laughs) and i was complaining to the driver saying this this what, this bus should not be even on the road. What are you doing? He goes well. It's in God's hands. I said no. Yeah. It's in your hands. You're the driver. <laughs> but uh, you know. But, but you know, it, it also speaks to that, uh, as you say, precarity. A word that I've used is vulnerability. Precarity yeah. might might be a little bit more specific to uh, to the meaning here, but the same experience, which is that the realization that uh, you know there are a number of risks that are out there, um, but the what's different is is not merely the the pervasiveness of of risk you know to life and limb but also the the cost of that risk the 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 lack of of you know what if something does happen how severe it can get and uh okay. and and that that's something that i think in you know coming from the united states it's a little hard to perceive um what that's going to mean Yes, to your entire yeah. decision-making process yeah. in life, yeah. So talk maybe talk about that concept and that that's central to the book, precarity and and how that not only what that is but how that shapes life for people.
1: Yeah, um, I think one of the things I I try and draw out in the book is um, is sort of the cyclicality um, of a sense of 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 well being and also. Um, uh, suffering. Um, and part of that is bound up with, um, but it's not solely bound up with, but partly bound up with, um, the cycle, the annual cycle of subsistence. So Mm -hmm. the, um, is a place where there is approximately three months of rain each year and then nine months of a dry season. And so, uh, whatever is produced in those three months of rain is what, sort of has to last people into, um, through the dry season. Now, of course, there are other modes of livelihood, um, including, um, and for a long time, this has been the case, livestock. So livestock form a kind of um, security for people to carry them, uh, to carry them for, from year to year, because you can sell them and, and purchase food. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's that That uh, the cycle of um, scarcity and bounty that happens through that agricultural season, that really, uh, I think, you know, in most years, there's nothing that sort of resembles a famine as we've come to think about it in the United States, yet there is almost every year, a period where a decent part of the population is restricting their food consumption um, and having to make decisions in direct relation to their concerns about um, about making it through the season or their concerns for their children. Um, and so, and also their concerns for maintaining their ability to have a livelihood in the future, right? You can't consume your seed. Um, you need to be able to plant it um, in the, you know, you need to be able to plant part of your harvest into the, yeah. into the future. And so um, that, that awareness really, um, people live, live that awareness every day. And that um, is something that I found it affected their social relations. It, it shaped their social relationships. Um, It all, it shaped how they went about their day. Um, And it also, as I go on to talk about in the book, shaped some of their political decision making Mm -hmm. in, in pretty significant ways.
0: Yeah you know, let me i I wanted to talk about you know your particular experience in living in the village and and some of sure. the families you knew but actually first in relation both to the precarity and to the cyclical nature of precarity yeah. that that you're mentioning as well as uh you know the religiosity talk about that prayer of the sun that you 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 quote and and what is that and what is that where does it come from and what does it tell us about Uh, perceptions of life uh, in uh, Nyaturu people who live in Singida region?
1: Sure. Um, There is uh, an oral tradition among the Nyaturu called the Prayer to the Sun. And uh, it's, uh, it's not um recited by everyone in society but it tends to be recited by elder men at sort of key social moments (laughs) um one of one of which is before um the women's kind of initiation ritual another of which is when um um, uh, um Two fathers, a father of a man and wom- woman, discuss uh, bride wealth. Um, before that conversation, they recite the um, the prayer to the sun, and then also when uh, someone goes to seek the services of a diviner, um, someone to help kind of. Um, either give them insight or to influence some relationship or scheme that they have. Uh, and so this prayer to the sun um, is, is not just a prayer to the sun, it's actually a prayer to the sun, um, which is sort of uh, conceptualized as masculine, The a prayer to the moon, which is uh, conceptualized as feminine, and a prayer to the Pleiades, um, which we know is the seven sisters constellation, uh, which um, kind of marks the agricultural cycle. As it moves around the sky, and um, and each of those sort of cosmological entities has its um, has its role in ensuring the well-being and um, protecting uh, people in Singida as as they have understood it historically and. Um, and the the prayer is is alive, so it's changed over time. I think some of the more recent versions I had included um prayers about schooling and examinations mm-hmm. and sort of aspects of the present so I, I'm not sure that it's ever told the same way twice, but the consistent themes um uh are are that the sun is responsible for for seeing um for seeing the good um the good into the day and and seeing all that is dangerous or representing illness or danger into the night sky. Um, and the, I think the the larger theme here is that um, disaster or suffering always awaits. But then again, so does relief. And so there's this very uh, I think it I think it's quite representative of um, of the way people people conceive um of their of their lives
0: Hmm. yeah i mean it's you can hear in it uh i'm kind of wondering if i should read a little i think you should yeah i have it open right here you know so here's just a couple phrases from it talking to the sun now you have thrown white butter of blessing on the mountain and the baobab tree may we all be cool place four sticks in the west and in the north and in the south and the east at midday pause over a homestead with ten houses spread out your blessing there to a homestead with only one house also send goodness do not burn us do not be too hot uh, and then toward the end talking to uh, this the Pleiades to, the, to the, the, the constellation imaged as a grandmother you suckle us you are a grandmother give us food let my grain swell, my people increase, my flocks also. Let my homestead grow larger. Your flower is a bride with white beads and cowrie shells on her head and a baby carrier on her back. Uh, I mean you can hear in that the cyclic, the cyclical nature that you talking that you talk about, the, the way the the way that subsistence is ingrained in, in the in the life of family and, and the homestead and uh, and, and reproduction. And, and all these things. And I, you know, I guess it does point to the conception of subsistence and that is par- bound up with precarity and, and cyclicality. Um, how do you con- conceive of a subsistence economy uh, in your experience? Uh, and maybe in this sense, talk about subsistence economy, but talk about as well your experience of living. In uh, in a Singida village and the families that you got to know and and how they how they live that life.
1: Yeah, um, well, you know, um, one of the things I, I try to do in the book, because, um, and it perhaps reflects the own, my own frames that I brought into it, um, was the extent to which um, the the village is a very differentiated place. Um, so uh, I think, you know, um, it's easy to kind of go into, it was easy for me to go into a village and sort of look around and see and see something that to me looked like poverty, when in fact there were, there were, there was great variation in the, the um, sort of ability of family, and people had a vocabulary for talking about that. Um, and so, so and even spatially and geographically, um, the houses and homesteads that lay along the road had a very different life experience life experience than people who lived down in the valley and were in more kind of remote areas. Uh, The area that I'm talking about, I want to say it's like a, maybe a 30 square kilometer village. Um, So it's quite uh, it's, 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 it's a pretty big geographical space. Um, And there was, I think a few thousand people um, at the time that I was, that I was living there. Uh, So um, a pretty big geographical space. Uh, The, I lived for three. The first three months I was there, I lived with uh, the head teacher and his wife and two small children, um, and his family has now grown. Uh, and I lived there for about three months. I I was very tended to there. Um, she was a wonderful cook, uh, and I had um, I had quite a bit of privacy. They gave me a room, and um, there was a courtyard. And in a sense, I was kind of uh, I was kind of, and I think this was intended when people planned for me to live there. I was kind of protected. <laughs> Um, and I didn't um, you know, it was really when I left their homestead that I interacted with people. Um, I, I got I felt this felt limiting to me after a few months. Um and and I felt like I would learn more if I was living along my living on my own. So I moved into I, I talked with the village chairman and he uh Created the opportunity for me to move into a room in the village office, and I wasn't the only person living in a room in the village office. There were also two teachers who shared a room that in the village office, and then there was also the the cattle expert, um, the Buana Mi Fugo, um, who uh, who served as the livestock, the rural livestock officer for that area. He also had a room, so I had mm-hmm. neighbors, um, and I've often described um, the living situation as kind of like camping in a garage. It was a um, a cement structure. With a corrugated iron roof, and I, um, and then there was kind of a, a, a latrine and a small, a small room where I could, um, where I could take. A, a bucket bath uh in in the evenings, and we all shared shared that uh shared that outhouse uh, back there um, and I guess what I would say is that my life all of a sudden became incredibly social uh and and it was at that point that that protection I had had what i didn't realize was that protection wasn't necessarily about safety in some senses it was um it was kind of moving on my own kind of thrust me into the networks of give and take that, uh, that, um, that I think really constitute village life. Um, However, Mm -hmm. I also stood out quite a bit. So it was, it was, uh, it it, was, People perceived me as somebody uh, – and and correctly, as somebody with resources uh, and um, who would be able to help them. And so it was moving on my own that kind of created and, – and I didn't have – I didn't have light in the um, in order to have any light in in the room that I lived in, and I had to leave the door the front door open and my windows open. So there was also, in essence, no no privacy. Um, And so all of a sudden, I joined in a much more, I think, real way this this Tanzanian village and had to learn to negotiate. Um, And I and I talk about this quite a bit in the book negotiate uh, being a Tanzanian person um, in and and I wasn't particularly good at this when I first started. Uh, it was, um, there was a lot of, of, I had a steep learning curve um, and sought a lot of advice along the way. But that was also really, I think, um, it, it was very profound and kind of re, trying to re-socialize me, um, even as I maintained this, this, you know, what can only be, de- be described as privilege in relation to um, the people that I was living amongst.
0: Yeah, gosh, there's there's a number of themes and I, I would maybe just like you to talk about uh maybe some specific experiences. I mean that that gives a good sense of of where you're at, but I I also know that that, you know, this kind of give and take it's true in all societies, but there's a a particular kind of very literal way in which it happens there. But I came to realize at some point you know as as much as it's a burden to be to be kind of receiving requests all the time and having to make a decision about how to deal with those requests. Uh, if you're not receiving requests, then you're really in trouble. That means people don't like you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, you know? I like that. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um,
0: you know, w- what are some experiences that where you really learned how to be, a, a person, a, a Singiden person in, in uh, central Tanzania?
1: Uh-huh. Um, well, I guess I'll, I'll talk first about ways in which, um, in which I felt nourished by those exchanges. I, I know whenever I would come from town, um, I would often go for the weekend to just charge my computer or. Um, do some shopping or something like that. Whenever I would come, um, right about when the sun was setting, as people knew I would be getting ready to cook, somebody would bring me um, hot burning embers. And that was because in Sangita you you bury your embers in a pot of ash every night so that you um, don't have to waste fuel or um, kindling or anything in the morning to start your fire. And you have your hot embers already waiting for your morning cooking fire. So I would get home and people would, um, people would, people would, uh, somebody would inevitably send fire for me to start my fire. Uh, And it was, it was just so thoughtful. (laughs) Um, And it was such a way to be welcomed, welcomed home. And, and those, you know, they were also markers of affiliation. Um, so somebody that you can borrow fi- fire from or take fire from is somebody that you are close with. Um, it's a way of of um, of indicating affiliation and identity and obligation and also friendship in a way. Um, I guess I had. Uh, a lot of, so I lived kind of near the roadside. So there were were a number of beer clubs in pretty close proximity to where I lived. Um, so around sundown would be also the time when people would be leaving their beer clubs to walk home. And they would always, um, it was always, it was often um, elder men and women that would, that would stop in my room and they, or they would stop by my room and they would say, um, Nini mgenye waho, which means like, I'm your guest, mimi mgenye waho, um, in, yep. in Swahili. And, and it really is kind of an order in a sense, um, and it's it's often joking, but um, but sometimes not. And trying to read that um, that assertion of a social relationship, I am your guest, <laughs> um, and the obligations that come with making that assertion um, was was really hard. It was, it was hard. um, It was hard to know how to deal with that. Um, And those I came to learn how to kind of joke them off because often they were done in jest or people would tell me, ah, just, you know, disregard that. Um, But then it was also through uh, requests for kind of important you know, important things like, um, clinic fees or food or, um, you know, just, I mean, these were small requests for even 50 cents or a dollar to, um, to help someone with some situation they had, um, trying to deal with those in a way, um, I, 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 Talk, again talk about this in the book um James Ferguson has talked about with this um this discomfort with dependence that westerners often feel in such contexts mm-hmm. because we have um we tend to conceptualize dependence as shameful um in a um coming from a very different social position. And so such requests were kind of embarrassing to me or, um, you know, I think I, I grew up in an environment where you tried to even if you interacted with someone who had a different economic ability than you, you try and minimize that socially. You try and and erase that and pretend like you're, you're uh, I think it's a very American thing, actually. Um, pretend like, you know, everybody's equal in this, in this relationship. And I think um, Tanzanians, in my experience, not just in Singapore, Gita, I mean, there's there's often a very explicit there's a demand to make explicit the um the differences in ability and um financial situation. Um, so people will often ask you, you know, what your house is like, or if you drive a car, or if you feed your, and this is, this was a big one. If you're, um, the rumor was that Americans feed maize to cows, which is not just a rumor, um, it's true. Um, but was, was often used to index the kind of, you live in a very different situation than us. Um, and, uh, and, and establishing that was often the way you started a relationship was trying to kind of, um, figure out where you, were you a patron or were you a client? Um, And that, that was very uncomfortable to me throughout my, my time in Singita. Um, But one that I also, I also came to appreciate, and and this is, um, I know, I think we may get to this question, but um, Ferguson uses this as a way to talk about, James Ferguson um, in his book, Give a Man a Fish, uses this as a way to talk about, um, to differentiate between social inequalities and, and asocial inequalities. Um, Talking about the the inequalities that Tanzanians kind of establish imply social and economic obligations to each other. Um, Whereas in, often in the global north, we, um, these inequalities are, are asocial. They are, are seen to be not related to each other, right? They, they are, they are taken out of relation to each other. Um, And, and it, it minimizes opportunities to make claims for redistribution.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I've experienced that kind of thing before and, you know, I've, I've often thought at some point I realized, you know, this kind of ubiquitous habit, which in Tanzania, you can get around a little bit. I mean, like this, but you know, like the cops, you know, demanding a bribe here or there, you know, yeah. and uh, what I've often found is, you know, I think like I was told early on never pay a bribe just because it makes the problem worse and you'll you'll wind up getting in more trouble but and I I know that I can, Tanzanians can't always get away with not paying the bribe uh, a, you right. know a white westerner can but the way to get around that was usually to kind of crank up my swahili and you know build a relationship and I I came to realize that you know one thing yeah. about all that kind of ubiquitous bribe making and taking because I've seen people who I consider you know, sort of pinnacles of, uh, of, of, uh, ethics and morality, you know, also sort of say, you know, to a cop who wants to give him a ticket, look, you know, let's, we can work this out. You know, it, it creates a social relationship. I mean, every time that happens, it's a social relationship. And I've had conversations with cops asking for bribes who, you know, it develops into a long conversation. And then finally they say, you know, you're, and it's just, it's funny how it, it, it is part and parcel of, of those, uh, Patron client relationships as yeah. well. Um, but why don't you uh, talk a little bit about um, you know, what is a what what is a private meal with a family look like? What are people eating and uh, and how does that change over the course of the year for a poor family?
1: Uh-huh. That's a really great question. Um so, in an ideal um world in a in a flush moment, um, people want to eat ugali, uh, which is sort of a stiff porridge made of uh, maize uh flour and water or millet flour and water or sorghum flour and water uh, and in in most households in rural Singida, ugali is a, li- is a little bit different than in urban areas because uh, people don't like to husk the maize. So it's more of a whole grain kind of ugali um, because people feel like it it, it sticks with them longer. Um, whereas often the the ugali you get in urban restaurants in um, in Dar es Salaam is a very fine white. Uh, and, and that seemed to be more of a of kind of a middle-class taste. Mm-hmm. Um, people always want to eat ugali with some sort of um, side or relish um, that you dip it into. and um, in a in a sort of a family that can, they would often eat uh, ugali beans, greens, so some kind of s- sort of sauteed spinach or wild greens. And then, um, in the, in the best case scenarios, when people have cattle, uh, to also drink sort of a, a buttermilk, um, uh, sort of a sour milk that, that, that people make from, from fresh milk. And, during the course of... And people tend to eat meals, um, eat two big meals a day, sort of mid, mid-morning, mid to late morning, and then in the evening. And then uh, they'll often give the leftovers to their children for sort of a, bref- a breakfast time. Um, during... As, as the food supply starts to dwindle, I think, um, and in some years more than others, there is... Um, many families start to cut down to one meal a day um, and then give their children the leftovers. So that's, I think, one of the biggest difference across time. So a poor family, and this is even um, true throughout the year, might only ever have greens and maize. Um, They also may rely, um, particularly in the hungriest of times, right before the harvest, that's when pumpkins come into pumpkins are ripe. And so pu- eating pumpkins with sort of this uh, local dried, boiled with a local dried salt is um, often what people are living, uh, living on at this time. And then in the worst of the hungry seasons, uh, people, um, there are ways to make money. And so people will uh, try and go to town to sell maize or charcoal. Um, they'll walk even, you know, sort of 30 kilometers in a round trip. Uh, and they have to walk further and further to find someone who during a hungry time is actually willing to buy their goods. Uh, and they, um, there are wild fruits in the village that people will eat. And often school children will go kind of scrounge out in the, uh, in the farms around the school to, um, to find fruit trees and other, other opportunities to have calories. Um, This isn't so common nowadays, but there are famine foods. There are foods when, when sort of the whole society is without food in the past, there are, there's a certain kind of thorn that um, in my experience, I'll always get stuck in your foot when you're trying to walk with sandals in Sinkita. Um, that, that is a thorn that um, in hungry times in the past was ground into flour. Um, and then what families would do would be to draw blood from um, the neck of a cow and they would mix the flour of the thorn with cow's blood because um, it wouldn't kill the cow, um, but would um, simply take the, the blood from the cow and they would, they would eat that um, to sustain them over time.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I know that that is a is a meal that, you know, Maasai yeah. people are famous for, but that it's, it's well known. Um, shoot, I was going to ask a question about, um, well, let's, let's kind of turn a little bit more to how this uh, develops into um, broader social relationships and power structures. And maybe let me start um a few years ago you know i attended a wedding in a village in singida and you talk a little bit about that you know where the sort of how does a wedding feast similar and you know is similar or different and different from a uh, a a home meal um and what happens at a wedding feast
1: yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think it's such a wonderful um, illustration of sort of how people understand social relationships and social obligations in relation to food. Um, so at a wedding feast, there there um, there might be a set of kind of special guests who go and eat um, inside the house after a wedding uh, has taken place. And they'll be served often rice, which is seen to be a... Um, a celebration food um, because it's not, it's mm-hmm. not produced in the area. So it's more expensive to purchase. Um, often they'll be able to partake of any meat, um, any livestock that have been slaughtered and, um, and made a stew from. And they might also be served beer or soda. Um, and, and they would be sitting on a sitting, in chairs or on stools and, uh, and, and would enjoy sort of a private celebration with the bride and groom. Um, In a, and then out in the courtyard, there would be people gathered who had attended the wedding and who were coming to enjoy the festivities. And, um, and those um, sort of, Traditionally, people have these big plates of food, and um, they would be served a more economical, economic meal. Um, that's also seen to be a celebration food, um, but makande, um which is, as you know, a, a, a kind of a combination of, of whole maize kernels and uh, and and beans that's cooked together with oil and salt and it's very savory and, and yummy. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would um, get, put these big plates uh, on, and sometimes there would be rice or stew on those plates uh, as well. And they'd be these huge plates that would be shared by, you know, six or eight people. Uh, And I think, um, and often, you know, the the host who is, there the hostess who is serving the food will kind of place those plates down in key areas. Um, and then there might be other people who are sort of, for whom it's difficult to actually reach the food. And I think those, um, that sort of that layout is kind of uh, representative of how people think of of um, of social relationships, and I think this is relevant when I go on in the book to talk about uh, the idea of rights. That rights um, only have a certain efficacy as a discourse of distribution in a setting where scarcity is such an issue, and where identity and affiliation are so. Um, there are gradients of identity and affiliation. There's um, not everyone is. Equal. Equal to any one person, Um, there are sort of these concentric circles of obligation that um, that 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 people understand in relation to their obligations to serve or feed others. um, That's really significant.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and what's striking is, you know, the way people deal with that precarity is first and foremost by building up those circles of yes. relationships and, and that's that's your safety zone yes um, to the extent that you can manage those and you know obviously if you are really poor you have very few tools with which to build those uh, relationships yes um, how do people manage uh, relationships um, both as patrons and as clients because everybody is a patron and/ or a client almost at any exact moment. Yeah. Um, How do they manage those relationships? And what do those relationships mean in their lives?
1: I think they are, they are managed temporally, um, in a sense, and this gets back to the cycles, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that, that there are, that, that, People are constantly, as you say, um, investing in social relationships, and doing that investing in moments when they can, um, when they can afford to. So, so harvest time is a time I experienced as as a time of such abundance, and in part because it was the time when people were sort of joyfully sharing, sending me things, um, kind of um, uh, directing. Um, the fruits and the bounty of their harvest towards the people that they hope to be able to count on in the future. Um, and, And I don't think it's a... I don't want to conceptualize as that kind of flow as simply an exchange of thing for thing, you know, like I'm going to send Mm -hmm. you stuff now so that you'll help me later um, because there's more to it than that. It, it constitutes these social relationships and constitutes people's um, yeah, people's meaning making in the world. Uh, And, and uh, yeah, we can, we can talk perhaps a little bit more about that. I'm not sure. Did I answer your question?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, uh, it, it, I think the key point is that these are not merely exchanges, you know, like, uh, here, I'll give you, uh, you know, yep. a, a, some charcoal or whatever, and with the expectation that you'll give me something back, that it's a much more profound relationship that's being established. And you don't always have, as you found, you mentioned, you don't always necessarily have to say yes. Yes. Uh, but you probably don't want to just say, no, get out of my face either. yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the, the appropriate response is, I'm sorry, I can't this time. Um, And that, that is a way of, 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 of recognizing that there's, you know, you can't, you can't be, um, you can't help all the people all the time, um, but that there's the desire there at some point um, is actually Mm -hmm. meaningful, meaningful to people as a, um, from that perspective.
0: Okay. Well, let's let's try to shift now. Um I mean we you know these relationships are are part and parcel of people's lives. How does this translate and and you're very insightful about this into uh political structures? Um there there is power inherent in these kinds of interactions. How does that become structured into uh the politics of Tanzania today?
1: Yeah. Um so one of the things I I became really interested in was um these kind of, these different modes of distribution and the different discourses that are, um, that are used to kind of structure flows of resources. And one of the things that kind of just struck me so, um, so strongly in the Singedan context was the... Um, was that throughout the the hungry season, food gets more and more and more and more expensive, until um, in a season in a in a year that's bad enough, um, food all of a sudden is free, <laughs> and um, and that sort of shift from a system of of distribution that is entirely market driven and determined by well um, supply and demand. Um, Switches all of a sudden to a system in which um, human relationships and, and humanity is more important than any than anything, and 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 to some extent my experience of the some of the arbitrariness of when that happened, um, and so one of the things I tried to understand in my book was how. Um, what did people do um, on both sides, both from the government side and from the the sort of villager side? how did what was required? what social work was required to make um, to make this shift in discourses of distribution and i um and to do that, I, I I actually started not in relation to food aid, um, which is what I was just talking about, um, but looked at sort of relationships of dif- distribution of food um, within village settings and sort of the different frames of moral um, of morality and meaning that were um, that were used to prompt people um, and prompt food to move into different categories where different um, different discourses of distribution were at play, uh, and I can I can talk more about that in specific or. Um, well,
0: would, l- we let me, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, you open the book actually with an insightful passage about um, uh, the, when when food aid is, uh, government food aid is uh, on the verge of being distributed, there had been an initial plan to distribute it only to kind of the very poorest families and thereby kind of target it most effectively. And then there was a protest you know, by, uh, led by young men, it would seem, uh, you know, who are kind of coming and going as they seek work <laughs> during a time of scarcity, um, saying, well, aren't we also citizens of Tanzania? And don't we also deserve the food aid? And so at that point, the food is both, you know, that concrete necessity, but it's also a sign of, of membership in a political community. Absolutely. And and there was a lot of contradictions in, in, in that, uh, that was an insightful opening to the book what can you how what what did you learn from that
1: yeah um you know, part of what they, what they were leveraging was also their ability to work for these village development projects. Um, And so they sort of threatened to go on strike if they weren't also sort of given their right. Um, And, and there, it can't be argued that they were also experiencing some degree of hunger. Um, Hunger was very widespread at that point. Um, But the, I guess that, Irony of uh, of that particular situation is that um, that this moral economy economy of the poor, this ability of the poor to kind of leverage uh, a different discourse of distribution than the market to make claims, is sometimes happening um, in ways that actually disservice the poorest of the poor. (laughs) Um, So it was Mm -hmm. the claims were made in ways that um, that were actually against the interest of those who needed it most, Um, and and I and i think that's um that's this moral economy of the poor is very is very political um even at that level and uh yeah that um that was a, a, a situation that always stuck with me
0: yeah um maybe talk a little bit in you know in theoretical terms i mean this is where you distinguish between a rights based discourse which these you would argue these young men were were claiming a right as citizens as opposed to the kind of patron-client-based discourse and the way that those are, they, they are kind of in parallel and they're both happening, you know, that they're they're both present. It's not that one replaces the other, but they're both present. Uh, what are those discourses? And you've mentioned James Ferguson. What are some other kind of theorists of hunger and, that you draw on and, and how does your work comment on their insights?
1: Yeah, um so so James Scott is another um I, I think his his book actually mm-hmm. influenced me probably it, it was it was one of the most influential um um books the mor- his book the moral economy of, of the poor. Yeah. Uh and he theorized a subsistence ethic um that um to which I'm indebted greatly indebted for um my understanding of um of subsistence citizenship and he uh he looked at the way in which the precarity of the poor, um, and he he cites someone as um, saying that, you know, peasants are kind of up to the neck in water so much that a ripple is enough to make them drown. And that experience of precarity uh, means that um, that most decisions that they make are in relation to sort of keeping keeping their head above water, quite literally. Oh. Um, but when um, and so often we perceive a kind of conservatism among the rural poor because of their de- their desire to sort of keep the ripples <laughs> from from um, from overtaking them. Um, but he he talks about how. Uh, at the point at which what they're doing is not working is often the point at which peasant rebellions then take place. Um, So part of what I'm doing in the, um, you know, I would say the most of the time in rural sangita villages, relationships have the priority and patronage is perceived to be a discourse of patronage um, in which one is asking for a favor, not making a demand is um, is the predominant is the predominant discourse um, between people who are negotiating uh, negotiating goods or the distribution of, of goods in society. However, um, When, um and, and rights claims are seen to be seen to kind of, um, in the words of someone I spoke with rights, refuse relationships. So rights kind of mm. deny that we are in relation to each other and make demands based on membership. Uh, like I'm a Tanzanian, I deserve this too. Um, is more a claim based on membership than a claim based on a, um, could you do this for me because we are in relation to each other. Um, and so, so rights are a more, a more radical option, I think, for people in this circumstance because they, um, um, they, uh, yeah, they render, uh, they render social relationships irrelevant or even kind of problematic. Uh, and are and so borrowing on some of James Ferguson's language or kind of adapting it, I talk about them as rights as asocial equalities, um, normative assertions about equal opportunity and distribution um, that are actually kind of cast adrift from the relationships through which they might actually be realized. Um, but rights come in handy <laughs> when patronage relationships aren't working. And um, so, so it seems to be more in the moments, more in the moments of, de- of desperation that people invoke a language of rights um because um whereas the rest of the time patronage relationships um tend to reference a, both of past and a future of uh, of interconnection and mutual assistance um that that seems to preserve relationships more
0: yeah um yeah, and it is interesting, you know, a, kind of a Westerner coming in perceives the rights uh, kind of language, this very depersonalized way of thinking as this is fair and just and right, and uh, this kind of uh, patronage language seems very disruptive of what we think of as fair and just and right. And and uh, and you talk about, you know, to some extent, your own presumption in in asking certain types of questions of village authorities, you know, not realizing how how deep these patronage relationships are and how, and, and, and how they do st- structure and preserve. I mean, there, it's, it's a, it's, as you say, it's, it's a, it's a social inequality. It's a, it's an acknowledgement of inequality. Uh, but sometimes uh, the as, as the, with the case of the, the young, the protest of the young men, uh, sometimes those patronage relationships recognize the realities of individual families more than the, mm-hmm. Kind of broad-based rights. <laughs> Let me um, move now. Uh, y- you talk in the last chapter significantly about um, a, a change, a political change that that is pr- fairly profound in many ways in Singida. Uh, you know, in Tanzania has since independence, um, with a slight change, has been ruled by a single party, uh, which is deeply ingrained and in, are embedded in, in a. a a, you know, a gigantic structure of patronage that that is more or less from top to bottom, and in that sense, it's a very familiar kind of entity, and, and it's it's a ubiquitous entity. And in some ways, its biggest success has been how ingrained it is at every level of Tanzanian society, and that's part of its electoral advantages. No no party can quite compete with that. Uh, and yet, given how much power it wields, how much patronage it wields, how ubiquitous it, ubiquitous it is. A, uh, a a a an opposition politician uh won the election in uh, 2010 uh yes. Tundulisu uh, and talk about him I and mean, he's a, he's a profound intellectual uh yes. which which comes across um, what are his, his in i mean maybe you can talk a little bit about why you think he won uh, there but also What are his insights into uh, the structure, the nature and structure of uh, Tanzanian society and, and politics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the uh, I came away from my two years of dissertation research that were that happened between two thousand four and two thousand six, and then I was back in two thousand seven. And um, and Lisu was not a, a figure that was sort of hanging around at the time. I don't. I think um, he may have been in in Europe at the time. Uh, but the the tension that was really building um, alongside these experiences of hunger was the pressure to participate in development projects. Um, on rural places like Singida, And um, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, however, the form that this type of participation took was really these kind of forced contributions to develop, rural development projects like building schools or building teacher housings or um, Uh, constructing a secondary school, um, digging, a cattle watering place, those types of infrastructural, rural and infrastructural developments. Um, And people were asked to contribute both labor to these projects, labor to collect the sand and bring the water to make the bricks, to burn the bricks, um, or to bake the bricks in the sun, and then to actually construct these projects, um, but also financial contributions. Um, So there were two main contributions during the time when I was there. The first one people felt was really excessive, and that was um, 6,500 shillings, so about um, $6.50 uh, to a, a World Bank water development project um, and then where some community participation was required, but sort of, from the I think from the bank's perspective, somewhat token. Um, and mm-hmm. then um, a secondary school project that actually required uh, about $20 per adult, so sometimes $40 if it was a two-adult househo- household for, um, for the construction of a secondary school. Um, And this was seen to be um, one impossible um, for most of the people uh, in most of the families. That's a lot of money
0: for, for a a village family in Tanzania. Yeah. $20 is is a lot. Yeah. Especially,
1: and this was 10 years ago. So prior to, um, to, um, to, you know, the current inflation um, issues and, uh and so there was there was a sense that that that, that people couldn't handle this um, but there was also uh you know from my perspective I met with donors who were funding this um, this mandate to get to build a secondary school in every ward in the country and the money was actually supposed to be there um, the money to fund the construction of these projects um, was supposed to be there um, and pe- but people were expected to contribute labor um, so what Li came in with in 2010 was was an overarching, was a campaign platform really based on a flat platform that these forced contributions um, were sort of, um, were quite literally, um, that they represented the corruption of the Tanzanian state. Um, And his Mm -hmm. argument was that, you know, the money, as it kind of made its way down the hierarchy of, um, from nation to region to district to ward to village everybody was taking their cut Um, and when it got down to a bottom to the bottom there was really no money left for the project itself and um and so michango or these forced contributions came the way that um that the state made up uh for um for this eating that eating of resources that was taking place and uh and um and that these, you know, schools then were constructed on the backs so of these rural people while other people ate um, the, the money that was supposed to fund them. So his entire campaign platform in 2010 rested on um, Michango and that Michango weren't fair. And it really resonated. And Singida came, came from being a place where it was like 98% pro-CCM to a situation in which Lisu actually won in, in 2010 and then um, won again in 2015 um, as, as MP of the Singida East district. Um, CCM fought this, and, and I talk a bit in the book about that. CCM fought this on, on every level, including redrawing the constituency borders. Uh, and, um, but there was sort of a mass mobilization. And Lisu, as a lawyer who's worked for a long time with rural communities, uh, really brought not just the language of rights, but an ability to use the legal system uh, for Rural people, um, and I think that was one of his really profoundly transformational um, contributions to political discourse in Tanzania. Is that is that people all of a sudden saw, for example, courts as not only the place where the will of the state was carried out <laughs> and and, mm-hmm. and um, imposed, but a place where people could actually um, adjudicate their own rights through the court system. Uh, um, including a resistance against a, a state that threatened to kind of consume them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in, in much of that, I'm sure, you know, and in, in much of that kind of re- people kind of already saw that happening and suspected that was happening. He was able to, it sounds like, you know, bring bring the, you know, the line and letter. I mean, he would be able to bring documents demonstrating what was happening in ways that made it concrete uh, and real. Um, more after the book was already in press, um, Tundu Lisu, as MP was uh, actually attacked and shot multiple times uh, outside his house in the in the political capital near the parliament in Dodoma, if I understand correctly. Um, and it's a, it's a big mystery, um, and I don't know. We can't solve that mystery here. But what does that uh, assassination attempt represent? Uh, to people, how do they interpret it uh and you know and what what does it mean in terms of what what does tunulisu threaten uh so profoundly that something, something kind of fairly unusual, a political assassination like that in Tanzania is, is, uh, almost never happened. So it was an unusual circumstance.
1: Yes, it is not at all representative of Tanzanian politics. Right. Um, it is, it is, it is such an outlier. Um, but, uh, and he, w- he was shot 16 times. Um, right. and, uh, uh, so the, the intensity of the attack, um, I think can be read not just as a warning to him but as a as an attempt to 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 sort of really get him out of the way he uh you know he in his own words as you know he is a thorn in the side of the state um he is uh, he says he's public enemy number one um and so much of that he's extremely charismatic uh and is a um And he's a fighter. Uh, So um, after, shortly after becoming um, MP in Sangita East, he was, he rose over the next few years to the position of Chief Opposition Whip for um, Parliament, and so... um, was in the place where he he wasn't just representing Singida, <laughs> um, but actually defining uh, opposition politics in the Tanzanian Parliament. Uh, he's a, a a pretty brilliant uh, lawyer, attorney, um, and has a knowledge of the law, uh, and doesn't um, doesn't let things rest. So I think his um, he represents he represents uh, t- and And there are plenty of Tanzanians who don't appreciate or don't like him um who 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 don't appreciate some of his techniques or his style. Um, uh, but he is um he's a very interesting and powerful character. and I think the um the the that is represented both in the assassination attempt but also in the attempts to kind of beat him every every year and get him um, out of the conversation. Well oh, great. Uh,
0: we've we've taken a lot of your time here and, and I really appreciate um this this conversation about this uh really profound book and there there's a lot of insight here. It's uh and and it it's deeply empathetic take on life. Uh that as much as our cultures are coming together, life in a subsistence economy is one that uh is very different from the one uh we experience as as uh, at least as middle class folks here in the United States. Um what else uh would you want to say about this book and uh and you know what what do you foresee as a uh, future uh, research projects.
1: Yeah, um, so I am starting a new project that kind of um, comes directly out of this project, and that is a, a collaborative project I'm working with Aaron Dean on, um, who is associate professor at the New College of Florida, uh, and we're we're doing a new project on energy in uh, in Tanzania and specifically renewable energy in in three sites: uh, Singida, Arusha, and Zanzibar, and looking at um, at Specifically, the social and political and economic transformations that are occurring as a result of um, uh, this pretty drastic uh, and overwhelming shift to having renewable energy and to rural places being more electrified than they were before through renewable energy sources. Um, we're specifically interested in gender um, and gendered conversations about energy, and I think that's um, that interest for me comes directly out of this book. Um, I, we, I've talked about Sangeeta as a, as a kind of energy desert, so drawing on the ideas of, of food deserts as places where nutritious or... Um, Nutritious food is either unavailable or unaffordable. Um, in similar ways, rural Singida is a place where um, where energy is hard to come by, uh, and um, energy sources like fuel, electricity. Um, uh, gas, um, there are issues of both affordability and access to all of those. And, um, and, and one of the ways in which it, it relates to this project is the extent to which, um, that, kind of energy desert sort of plays itself out on bodies um and specifically women's bodies through labor labor that Mm -hmm. could be supported through other energy sources but ends up being um being supported through manual labor and kinetic energy and caloric energy Um, and and so i'm i'm interested specifically in in um in impacts on women that these new energy sources are having Um, in uh not just in Singida, but also in sort of in peri-urban arusha and then uh also the 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 field site of erin is um is in islands and uh so we're looking at the at the policy and the um political and social effects of these new energy sources
0: wow i mean that sounds fascinating because you know you you kind of opened up with a you know talking about uh you know people bringing charcoal uh to your house as a gift um and that you know literally energy and and you know the collection of charcoal uh well which is men participate in the production of charcoal certainly but um but women are the ones who are collecting firewood and oftentimes the poorest families don't even buy charcoal they have to go collect firewood and then that the interaction of that with the entire subsistence economy and the rains and 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 the ubiquitous concept that the the trees are necessary for rain. And I don't even know whether the, the science, how totally accurate the science of that is, but certainly people perceive that. And there's just, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of symbolism built into all those energy relationships. Um, yeah. And, you know, but what's also interesting is we are in a time where a grass uh, thatched roof might have a little solar panel on it hooked up to a car battery and it's charging a phone and uh and that is radical uh, and that is that is new and transformative in in ways that are entirely happening at a kind of base market level not even driven by uh major investments at the same time uh you know I know that there's an I don't you know there's an ongoing uh never ending attempt to build a big wind farm in Singida which has a huge wind resource uh and yet uh that's caught up in the politics of patronage i think and never quite gets built uh although i, I think there are, i I've, i know there are also complications with the integration of wind energy into a very small energy grid that tanzania has
1: yeah and a lot of those questions were actually what um what drew my what drove my my shift to looking at energy was that that um wind farm was actually due to be built in the village that i worked in um and uh and and didn't necessarily promise people in the village any Access to its fruits, other than possible employment, um, but electrification uh, had still not arrived. Last time I was, I was in. Syria. Yeah, uh, well, it, so, yeah.
0: I mean, it's just it's so. Int- I mean, it just another thing that struck me is that yeah, you can have these huge infrastructural kinds of things, and around you know, a little south of Singida and Dodoma, I remember being in villages. You have these big uh, transmission towers buzzing overhead with electricity. Uh, but none of it is, is, you can't down, uh, grade it into the villages. And so the villages are still unelectrified. Um, and it just goes, it speaks to those same networks of, uh, of who gets what and, uh, and how to distribute resources, whether it's food or energy and the link between these two. Yes. That sounds like Mm -hmm. a fantastic project. Um, well, thank you for your time, Kristen. Uh, this has been a great Um, conversation and, uh, I look forward to your future work.
1: Thank you for the opportunity to talk.